You're listening to the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Top Woman. Business Unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through these podcasts, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts. There's some newsletters that you should be part of. But there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in. And and, uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Okay, so um, welcome everybody to this morning's uh, Business Unusual Topco podcast. Today I'm joined by Magda Verchka um, from Signia. She's a CEO and she's all the way in London. Welcome and good morning. Just about good morning. Hi, Hi. morning. Well, how are you doing? Um, well, how can any of us be doing in this lockdown situation? You know, I don't think it's easy for anyone. And I think, you know, the, the longer this goes on, I think the more difficult it is to see an end to this. So, um, I'm sort of yeah. torn every day between optimism and pessimism. It's, and, and I don't like the pessimist in me. So it doesn't go, it doesn't go well with my personality. But um, <laughs> yeah. we were talking earlier and we were saying that for me, you know, um, my, my father was an entrepreneur and we, we would travel between countries, New Zealand, Australia, England, South Africa, and he was very good at setting up new businesses all the time. He would be able to set up a business before he even moved to the next country. And I think it was because it was, it, it was he came from the war and, and maybe all those sorts of issues that, you know, very um, poor background. But I think, you know, what I did realize is every time he does set up a new business, it does take time. Things don't happen overnight. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are looking for immediate success, immediate gratification. But life, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. And I suppose that's what concerns me a little bit is that the time period that we have to, to it, it's great to turn things off, but to get them going again, I, I'm worried a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm very worried, not, you know, a little bit worried. So obviously I, I arrived in London last week, but before that I, you know, spent five months in South Africa in lockdown. And, um, you know, I do think that never mind the path of the disease in Africa is different to, to what happened to Europe. But when, 
you know, Cyril Ramaphosa stood up and locked the country down in March. I think I was the only or one of few people going, this is the biggest mistake ever because, you know, in an economy such as South Africa, where you've got such a huge reliance on the small and medium sized enterprises, which is really entrepreneurial businesses, you yeah. cannot afford to shut those businesses down because the human impact of that will be much larger than the impact of the COVID-19 virus, which is, you know, very particular about, you know, the, the mortality aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unfortunately, politicians react to social media, politicians react to different pressures. But, you know, a country like South Africa, the, the human cost of this lockdown and what has happened to, to uh, people, poverty, hunger, crime, social issues, violence against women, you know, all of those things cannot be underestimated, you know, in the, in the context of what has happened. And, you know, that's very worrying and problematic for me. Mm. I think there's two sorts of thinking, isn't there? I mean, there's the unions again today about the schools. I don't know if you saw, but yes. I've got the three boys here because yes. they're not going to school. And, and, and I almost thought it wasn't worth the risk of going to work because of uh, yes. the travel. So, yes. I, I think their the, the, the experience of trying to lock the country down, though, has really been locked down. So everybody's able to cope with with this uh, lockdown, which is quite funny yeah. in a way. Um, but I mean, how are we? Is is there like Colin Coleman said to me about in November last year? He came to an event of ours and he spoke about a social compact. Is that something that you think is is sort of needed in this period? Do you think there's so much? discrepancy between business, government and labour that we need to bring people together? So I think that there was a time for social compact and, you know, I kind of made the point before when I was South Africa that, you know, I think in March, April, May, there was huge amount of goodwill yeah. from business, from yeah. just, you know, the men in the street to enter into that compact. Mm -hmm with government to, to try and solve these things. And, and then you saw some, you know, huge amounts of generosity in terms of the donations made to the Solidarity Fund. You saw Rupert's Oppenheimer's, you know, donating a billion rand each as family to the COVID relief um, uh, projects. Um, but unfortunately, given what has played itself out, and I, I so distinctly remember Cyril in his first speech talking about the fact that you know, every cent that will be donated to, to this effort will be accounted for, will be scrutinized, will be, will not be wasted. And, you know, people donated, you know, executives at Signet donated salaries. You know, we were right there. Um, you know, I even participated in a government infrastructure conference where I said, you know, you've got such a spirit of being able to mobilize solidarity that, you know, I do believe pension funds would have invested right there and then in any, you know, tangible relief efforts that were put on the table. Unfortunately, you know, and you don't have to go far, but to open the Sunday Times yesterday to know mm -hmm. that the social compact, the willingness to enter into social compact with government was broken. So mm -hmm. the looting that has taken place during this period of the very funds that we were promised will not be looted. The lack of supervision that has happened where we were distinctly promised as business, as individuals, 
as citizens, as taxpayers, that this will not happen. And you see something like, you know, 90 tenders in Hauteng along or Chuane where, you know, the, 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 again, money has been grossly inflated tenders, inappropriate tenders, wastage of money, money gone missing. You know, I don't know whether there is a willingness for any social compact. And then, of course, you see things such as, you know, for a social compact to, to exist, you have to have a willingness. You know, it's not a begging bowl from government. And today, all we've seen is kind of a begging bowl and empty words, empty promises. You actually have to have some tangibility. And so I believe that business has to some extent and would have come to the table a lot more. I believe that taxpayers would have come to the table and have come to the table. I think government has failed. And then, of course, unions have not come to the table at all. And again, you look at, um, I think it was China, where the you know wage increases, they forced through. Some were forced through 6.75% wage increase mm. in this climate last week. Mm. So, so what social compact, you know, what social compact are we talking about? Um, what's on the table? Because, you know, I have a business in South Africa, you know, I pay taxes in South Africa. I um, have property in South Africa. I have interest in South Africa, you know, and I have to look at it from a personal perspective and say, someone needs to come to me and say, Magda, please enter into the social compact because this is what we have put in place over and above what we have already said mm. before I would come back to the table. Is and it it's sad. Do you think it's a leader? I mean, what, also I get, what gets me thinking is, so what's the solution? <laughs> I, I can't help myself but think yeah. like, solution it's, it's pretty is, dire, right? It's like the, the, the promises are made yeah. and even, even the, what's going to happen, it was like, we're going to get all the different bodies together and we're basically going to give someone a slap on the wrist. And we're going to, there was nothing clear. It wasn't like they're going to prison. We're going to take the money back. This is urgent. It, it didn't have that sense of mm. determination. Yeah. Like, yeah. we're going to fix you. So, so you know, I, I just have a sense that, um, I don't know, that there's a you know parallel universe that we live in and there is... Because remember that at the end of the day right now, the only people who have borne the brunt of this crisis has been the private sector and the poor. The public servants and government officials have had their salaries paid. They, many of them sit at home doing nothing on full pay. Nothing has happened to them. Private sector, you know, whether it's, you know, and I'm not talking the largest corporates, I'm talking about the SMEs. I'm talking the SMEs that are then employing the, you know, people who, who live in townships, people in townships, the vulnerable. Those are the people that have borne the full cost of this, you know, pandemic and, and this lockdown, more importantly. Um, I think that, look, the, the negatives are that I don't, you know, I've heard the word social compacts thrown around for quite a few years now in different contexts. So, you know, I'm, I'm fairly pragmatic on the social compact type, you know, nice terminology. It's, mm -hmm. it's you know, rubbish. So, so what is tangible in South Africa? I think this 
certain positives. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them might not be kind of, of that apparent. One is that we are actually, that this government mm-hmm. is unable to go to IMF for a bailout. Because, for a true bailout. Because if it did, then, you know, IMF would enforce, you know, cuts in public service sector, wages, pensions, social benefits, um, shrinkage of the public sector. So, so all, for, for all these reasons, um, the government ANC will, will not, or at least, you know, it would not be really. absolutely the avenue of last resort to go to IMF. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually don't believe that IMF bailouts have done anyone any good. So you only have to look at Greece to see that they have been complete disasters. So, so they're not going to IMF for different reasons, but I think that's positive. Because they can't, go, because they can't commit to the type of commitments that international institutions would require to grant us funding, we are very, very limited in terms of how much money we can borrow. That's a positive, not a negative. And the positive is that... You know, to date, South Africa has benefited from the fact that the money we have borrowed has by and large been rent-denominated and not dollar-denominated. Now, if our debt had been dollar-denominated and the Mm. rent has depreciated to the extent Mm. that it had, imagine Mm. the impacts on the fiscal. So the fact that we are very limited in terms of, you know, some relief funds from World Bank or African Development Fund, they're teeny tiny. so, so we are actually constrained in our ability right now to mm-hmm. borrow in dollars. And I actually mm-hmm. think that looking forward, that will be our savings grace. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, okay, so, so there is it. And then, you know, in, in the private sector, because South Africa is, you know, a country of fairly resilient people. And when I talk about resilience, I don't talk about just kind of entrepreneurs or small businesses, but I also talk about people who do live in townships, who are vulnerable. Mm. You know, somehow they survive. Mm. And so I think that that resilience will, you know, be a savings grace in the sense that people will adjust. Um, Mm. Whether it means having less, whether it means spending less, whether it means, um, you know, I, I mean, you know, some, some of the things that we have seen is, you know, huge amount of generosity in terms of, um, you know, most families, if they can afford to, are maintaining their, um, the, the employees that they employ, whether it's in a household, whether it's a small business, they're trying to help. Mm. Um, you know, so, so, so the, the, the solidarity and this kind of compact that you're talking about almost mm-hmm. exists between, you know, various sectors of the private sector without the involvement of the public sector. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of, you know, and, and then, of course, we've always had a very large informal economy. So that's yeah. the economy and not taxes are paid where businesses, you know, be it spaza shops, be it someone selling fruit by the side of the road, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, be it illegitimate bootlegging, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it exists. And I think that informal economy is potentially what's going to get us through this time, you know, mm-hmm. not, not lead to a huge recovery, but at least, you know, hopefully we are not going to see people dying of hunger. 
in, in this situation. I mean, I spoke to Davi Road a couple of months ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and he basically felt that the, the opportunities are there because as governments try to take on more and not being able to deliver, it's creating opportunities for entrepreneurs to then take on some of those opportunities and deliver and solve the problems that we have. So it's actually encouraging more entrepreneurship what they're taking on. But I think it still brings some fears into, into our lives. How do you see, I mean, th there is a sense when I speak to people that South Africa looks like it's going to come out in many ways better than other countries. And it seems that that's not felt necessarily when I speak to my friends or, you know, people of the lower levels. So from a, from a higher level people think, no, no, we're going to come up better. And, and I'm not sure if it's because, like you mentioned, of the borrowing. So because the UK is borrowing such high amounts, because the US is borrowing such high amounts, because their lifestyle is so high that they're going to be in a debt trap where we're not going to be in that same level of debt. Is it, is it that? But then I look at the, the poverty that we've got here, the, the, the people on the ground, and I suppose that fear, there seems to be a fear Possibly. I don't know if that same fears in the UK or America. Well, you know, of course, you know, so, so, so let's, let's look at the, you know, in South Africa, I think the poverty has always been there. So there are greater levels of poverty right now. I think the middle class in South Africa has become lower middle class. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, given what has happened to the rents, so I think the entrepreneurship, that you're talking mm -hmm. about will also come from the fact that the rent has appreciated. So mm -hmm. everything that you import will become and is mm -hmm. now so much more expensive that mm -hmm. you hopefully that creates opportunities for domestic manufacturing, for domestic supplies. So mm -hmm. if you can source goods domestically as opposed to importing them, you will. Mm -hmm. If you can make things domestically as opposed to, you will. So, mm -hmm. so that's where the opportunities are. And mm -hmm. then, you know, from a, Pragmatic perspective is, you know, our expectations are so low yeah. that anyone will come and bail us out. Mm. That I think as a nation, and I'm again excluding government or the public servants or the teachers' unions, but I think, um, you know, as a nation, expectations are low. We know no one is coming to our aid, not the government and mm. uh, not anybody else. Um, that we actually to survive and you know you're talking about 59 million people mm. we will have to make plans whether it's in the informal sector whether it's in townships whether it's small mm. medium-sized enterprises whether it's a corporate sector now being in the uk completely different picture and you know the, the picture is one of um the government will provide you know, the, the furlough scheme in the UK, where basically, you know, what companies have done is they furloughed their staff, which is basically they haven't retrenched them, but the government mm. has taken over the obligation for pay, paying their salaries till the end of October, mm. provided the, that the person is not working. Because crazy. if they're working, obviously, it's utterly crazy. People are sitting on, <laughs> on holiday without realizing that by October, they furlough is going to be retrenched. So people are being called back to the office. They're refusing to come back to the office. They're very happy, you know, again, without realizing that bumps in seats translate into you potentially have a job in October. Your mm -hmm. refusal to come back to the office potentially means that there's no job in October. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, then I was told, well, yes, but, you know, even if the furlough scheme ends and I'm retrenched, you know, I will receive social benefits. Mm. So, you know, there's a little bit of a stigma attached to living on the doll, but, but the government mm. will provide. Mm. So there isn't the same sense of, oh my God, I need to make a plan. In fact, there's no sense of it whatsoever mm. that I need to make a plan. And, but when you talk about fear and anxiety and, you know, I'm, that, I'm going to touch on a slightly kind of, you know, sensitive matter, but I'm seeing a lot more fear and anxiety in countries like United States, and I'll talk to that UK, than I'm seeing in South Africa. South Africa, you know, we know no one is coming. So we are already focused on how do we survive? What solutions do we make? Here, what you're seeing and the fear that, you know, is manifesting itself in these mass demonstrations that you are seeing in United States and in uh, UK. So I know that it needed a spark and Black Lives Matter became that spark that unified people. But when I see, uh, you know, the mass protests of these angry young people in the streets, I'm seeing fear. I'm seeing people who have no jobs, who potentially have lost their plans, their future. They don't know what the future holds. You know, people who have a job to go to on a Monday morning are not in the streets demonstrating and destroying. So, so fear here is very much here, but it's just manifesting itself in a different way. Um, and that's, you know, obviously not to say that the cause isn't worthwhile because it is, and it, you know, and, and it is a highly inflammatory spark. Mm. But I think people want to be in the streets because they want to be with other people who are in the same position as they are, so they feel less anxiety. Whereas, you know, mm. in South Africa, we haven't, I mean, apart from a few minor protests, and I believe there's another one in Cape Town today. No. You know, we've just gotten on with it, mm. with making plans rather than thinking, okay, we need to march on parliament. For sure. So, I mean, one of the other things that, that interests me about you is that, um, you know, as someone that's sort of come from Poland and almost an immigrant to South Africa, there's been a lot of sort of um, research around successful entrepreneurs, successful business people and immigrants. And I mean, I look at some of the xenophobia that's taking place in South Africa, but I actually look at it as an opportunity that you have so many immigrants in South Africa that are going to help us in our next wave of driving this economy. Is that, is that something that you see or is it something that you... So, you know, uh, I don't think it's an issue of immigrants as no. much as it's an economic issue. So, and, and hence that talks to entrepreneurship in South Africa. You know, the, the reason it's kind of been labeled as, you know, and immigrants tend to be entrepreneurs. Actually, that's a, the wrong narrative. It's people mm. coming from a poor social economic background mm. with mm. few options who mm. have to make a plan very mm. early on because They've got no expectations that parents will take care of them financially or otherwise. They probably have had, you know, kind of nonlinear childhoods, disrupted education. They know that um, their parents have nothing and you will have to support your parents 
you know, and, and potentially a greater family. And we've got a lot of it in South Africa. You know, mm. it's not specific to immigrants. Whereas, you know, in countries like UK, obviously, you know, people grow up here, they go to school, they've got very linear childhoods, they've got expectations that parents, you know, they can move back in with their parents. Whereas, you know, my expectations when I arrived at the age of 12 in South Africa and my father said to me, okay, that's it. You know, we've got $500. That's all we have. We've got three suitcases. I need to focus on kind of rebuilding a life, but don't expect anything. You are on your own. So, you know, by the age of 18, I had a full-scale bursary. I was completely financially self-supporting. By the age of 25, I was supporting my parents. Mm. But I had no expectations that someone will give me something, that I will inherit something, that, mm. oh, you know, I can relax because at the end of the day, you know, when my wealthy aunt dies or my parents pass away, there's a house, there's a car, there is, there's none of that. So you become a lot more self-reliant. But I think in a you know, South African context, that's true not just of immigrants, but of vast swathes of our population. I love that word self-reliance. Actually, something I heard last week, we had a conference, and I think that um, it's, it's, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, wrote that book about self-reliance. Um, really, really intriguing. And I think you're right. I think that's one of the things that probably brings about that, that um, resilience in South Africans is there's no really reliance, is there, on the state or anybody else. You've got to get off your bum and, and, and sort of make things happen. And I mean, for you to do what you've done, though, it's not been easy. It's been quite amazing. Um, and I think, you know, I watched, I was doing some research and I watched a YouTube video and I was showing my son, he's 20 your story, um, and my wife said, don't turn, she normally tells me to turn off my videos, right? turn it off, she's like, no, no, put that on. Um, and so your story is absolutely amazing, and I, and I wish that more South Africans could see it, but um, there's not really enough women entrepreneurs, women business people who are leading the way that you're leading. Why is that, do you think? Because you've done it, so you mm. have sort of risen to that opportunity but there's not enough others who are rising at the moment to that um look i think i think that's possibly not correct i think there are women but but you know and and i think they're possibly not enough i mean and and again i'm going to be you know touch on sensitive topics i think um there are a lot of non-white women who have risen to the challenge they're just not Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's. Um, Do you think it's is is racially aligned then more more? Oh, black I think there are women are more incredibly. driven. Absolutely, I think that you know, if I look at South Africa and demographics of South Africa, there are so many strong black women. Yeah. You know, leading the way. Yeah. Um, they possibly are not as vocal as I am, but they, they truly are. You know, and and the spectacular, spectacular woman. You know, I think my thing has been, you know, perhaps, you know, the the, the fact that there are not enough women in financial services. Yeah, maybe that's what I was going to say. Or IT. Or IT for that matter. And, you know, there it's an issue of, I think you need a different level of resilience in in both those industries. So, which... Mm -hmm. Not which don't necessarily talk to women's strengths. So, you know, in financial services, I mean, I've, you know, I've started six different, okay, if I include UK now, it's my seventh business I'm starting in financial services. 
Um, but, you know, the, the very first business I worked in, you know, Coronation, it was, you know, there was a startup when, when I joined. But it was such a, you know, men kill men, dog eat dog environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that through my financial services career, when I employed very, very competent women, mm-hmm. invariably they would resign. Yeah. And when I would call them into my office and say, why are you resigning? You mm-hmm. are completely capable of managing money, of leading. Of, of, mm-hmm. They would say to me, frankly, Magda, who needs this crap? Mm-hmm. Have you ever said in the investment team, well, have you seen the way men talk about women here? Have you mm-hmm. seen this level of aggression where you're fighting for mm-hmm. bonuses and fighting mm-hmm. for money? You know, mm-hmm. women like to work in collaborative environments. Financial mm-hmm. services is not a collaborative environment. Mm-hmm. And hence, women opt out mm-hmm. of financial services. And then, you know, IT, and again, I run, you know, a software development company and have for, for a better part of the last 15 years as part of Signia. Mm-hmm. And there, I think it's, again, a different thing. You know, the, the really talented software engineers tend to be extreme introverts. So, you know, they would sit next to each other, but they communicate via some WeChat on the screen. Women talk. <laughs> so, so it has nothing to do with uh, whether they're capable or not. Of course they're capable, yeah. but they don't want to work in an environment where no one makes eye contact. Yeah. But again, they opt out. I've forgotten his name, Jordan, Jordan, and he, and he wrote The 12 Principles of Life, I think it was called. Yes, oh my God, that goes back, um, oh my God, it goes back, takes me back to my early 20s. I think it's one of the first business books I um, read. I was started, you know, I had to work off my bursary at Southern Life, and uh, I was sent on some course, and that's the first book uh, that I was given <laughs> to read, The 12 Principles of that's and, correct. And, around, and they asked him about gender empowerment and he said, and he basically said he doesn't believe that women want, they've, they've made a choice to not take on some of these opportunities. Yeah. It's not, and so either we've got to change those, those sectors to make them more, I don't know, um, not appealing okay. for women, but certainly more humanize those sectors and, and, and take yeah. away some of the... Yeah, the, the toughness in that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, it's, it's, you, you really would have to culturally change those organizations because, you know, in, in financial services, I mean, if I look at my path through financial services, and again, it's not been a linear one. I worked in an environment where, you know, I wasn't a leading a company, so I couldn't set the tone. And, mm. you know, I can tell you, those were rough years mm. of... You know, you are being beaten up and beaten up and beaten up. And when I left Coronation, I said, never again. And that's where, you know, I set them up my first company. Then, you know, that was bought out by African Harvest, but I was CEO of African Harvest. Mm-hmm. Then when I sold African Harvest, I started Signia. But I had a very clear mindset of, I will never have a male boss again under any circumstances. You know, so I can build that bad. in the financial services sector. Yes. You know, I don't want to work. So again, you know, if you came into Signia, you would find that it's a very non-traditional financial mm. services company. Mm. We don't tolerate infighting. We don't mm. tolerate, you know, the team of people I have with me, some of them have worked with me for 20 years. 
Yeah. And it's a completely collaborative effort. People might have a very different perception of me in real life versus what it is inside the business. When we make a hiring mistake in terms of bringing in someone, not incapable, but someone who thrives on internal competition, you know, mm. and, and killing others in order to get, we get rid of them. Mm. You know, my, my uniform message to the team is, guys, there's plenty. Of, if you want to fight, fight mm. competitors. There are so mm. many competitors to fight. Mm. Internally, we don't fight. Internally, we collaborate. We help each other. If there is a problem, we bring it to the table together as a team. And someone, if you need help, you put up your hand and you, you say, I need help. And 20 people jump up and say, how can I help you? Mm. So, um, you know, that's mm. a culture that I, I created at Sigia and it's a very, very non-traditional financial services culture. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm intrigued with index funds. Obviously, in the States, yeah. it's growing in its popularity. You're seeing far more people investing their futures in index funds. But I'm not seeing the same level of that in South Africa, which is surprising. And so is it because margins are generally so high here that people think of the 2% commission and don't see it affecting them? But, but is, it, is it that? Is it a culture issue? I mean, no, I'm, no. I'm struggling to think, why are we not mm. more infatuated with index funds? It's just ridiculous. So, you know, I've managed my first, so I'll, I'll give you some of the reasons. Um, so I've managed index funds. My very first index fund, I started at Southern Life in 1992. Southern Life, um, for those that remember all insurance companies, many years ago. Um, you know, it was a failing insurance company, failing asset management company. I was a very young actuary. I was like, you know, three, three months out of university. And they said to me, well, you know, they've heard about this thing, index tracking in the United States. And because the active side is failing, once I traveled to Los Angeles, learn as much as I can about, they sent me to some firm in, in LA. Um, I remember it was during the OJ Simpson trial. <laughs> weekend, I went on a little bit of a tour of uh, downtown LA. And, um, you know, I came back a full believer in index tracking, which really was in its infancy. Mm. Um, you know, reverse or fast forward to today. More than 50% of savings in the United States is now managed on both re institutional retail on an index tracking basis. The, in UK and Europe, it's around 30 to 40% and growing. Um, the range of index tracking funds that's available, so the range of different products is so much wider in scope than what active managers can deliver. So, so to me, there is no other way of managing your savings yeah. in the list you want something that has the potential to deliver exponential returns, then you mm. need to look at unlisted opportunity, yeah. which usually it's too complicated for, for, you know, kind of man in the street type investor. But if you're an institutional type investor, that's mm. where the real, you know, returns lie. So I'll, I'll use some very simple examples of if you think, you know, how much value was created in you know, Alibaba before it listed, Twitter before it IPO'd, uh, Google before it IPO'd, Microsoft before it listed. Mm. That's where the true value creation happened. Facebook, that's mm. what, you know, so, so you wanted to be investing in those companies at those inception phases, not mm. after it listed. So, mm. so that's exponential growth. But for mm. average investor, whether it's pension fund or whether it's um, 
retail investor, obviously index tracking is the way to go. Yeah. And you will outperform, you know, so, so S&P and there is a website if you want to Google, S- mm. Google S&P SPIVA survey, S-P-I-V-A. And they run a wonderful website. I yeah. actually tweeted it so, so with the link. So, you know, this weekend, if, if anyone's interested, but um, they run a wonderful website where they show different geographies, United States, South Africa, Brazil, India, Europe. And they show the percentage of uh, actively managed uh, general mm-hmm. equity unit trusts that have uh, underperformed the local benchmark. So yeah. United States, S&P 500. Mm. Eight, so over five, and they, they show the numbers over five years, three years, and one year. So consistently across geographies. For South Africa, you just need to click because they show a weird index in terms of the graph. But if you click on mm. the full report, you'll see the top 50 index. Mm. Um, the, the number is 80%. Mm. 80% of actively managed general equity unit trusts mm. underperform. The mm, mm-hmm. So if that's true, then, you know, the equivalent is to say to you, okay, please come into my casino. I'm giving you 80, 20 odds on losing your money. Yeah. I think it's worse. What you play. Over 10 or 20 years, it's even worse. It's so even. no but, one can get it right. Yeah. So, so why is South Africa different? So, so in South Africa, what, you what know, is South Africa? What, what roughly are we investing in index funds? Zero or like? Oh, no, no, look, it's marginal. It's marginal. It's less than 10% of savings is being managed yeah. in index tracking funds, but it's growing. So, so one thing I can tell you is that our retail side of Signia is growing yeah. exponentially okay. with index tracking. Okay. But what are we fighting? We are fighting the fact that, you know, South Africa is a small pond mm. and you know, reverse back to early 1990s, you had, um, I mean, effectively three companies today, but, you know, there used to be a couple of more that fell by the wayside. Ellen Gray invested Coronation. Mm. Boutique asset managers then, large asset managers now. Mm. Average spent on advertising w- would run between 100 million to 180 million rand a year on billboards on TV ads, you know, so, so on, on radio advertising, on, you know, so, so the subliminal message of mm. top unit trust, Investec or 91, 91, top unit trust, top, have you ever seen a billboard which mm. says, sorry, our unit trust is bottom performing? <laughs> top performance, top performance, top performance, top performance. How do you ensure it? Well, you know, you launch 30 unit trusts and hope for the best. At any given point in time, one of them is going to be somewhere. And that's yeah. the one you advertise. Next week, it's a diff- different fund on the billboard. You don't realize it driving through or driving past the billboard. Ellen mm-hmm. Gray, long t- long-term underperformer, long-term advertiser of performance is a long-term game. Mm-hmm. You know, stay with us for the long term and we will deliver. Mm. Well, they haven't. Mm. Um, but that doesn't stop the billboards. That doesn't. So, so because those managers started at a time when insurers were losing money, money was moving to independent boutiques. Mm. Um, there was a whole consulting story. So consultants, financial advisors were selling these novel boutiques as well. 
you know, people believe, you know, if I turn to my 80 year old mother and say to her, name some asset managers, she says, Ellen Gray and coronation. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, in the context of that, how do you compete, particularly that with passive, your margins, of course, are so much smaller. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we charge a fraction, a tenth of, yeah. you know, our S&P 500 index tracking fund charges 0.1% per annum mm -hmm. versus an actively managed international fund coronation investor. Usually the fee is one and a half percent per annum. Two, one and a half, yeah. So, so look at the margin I have to spend on advertising, which is negligible. Mm -hmm. Mm. versus Ellen Gray of this world. And I mean, I know that you're also, I don't know if you're selling or you're, you're helping people invest in Berkshire Hathaway. Yes, I mean, just for fun. Just you for know, fun. It's just for fun. I mean... Have you met him? No, I haven't met him. Mm. Um, you know, obviously I've been to Omaha to, to listen to yeah. one of those um, yeah. crazy, crazy rambling... And I watched the AGM online. Thank God for COVID, actually. Yeah. What interested me was when he, when he talked right at the beginning, because I was also looking for a big investment to save some organizations. He's got like 135 billion on cash. And I thought, yeah. wow, this is his time to shine. He's been saving for a while. But then he hasn't invested. And then he spoke about the story about him when he's – in 29 when his father was fired the day it happened and then nine months later he was born and then if you took the if you invested that day he was born nine months after 29 that that the market if you invested a thousand dollars in two years time it was only, it, it would only be worth a hundred i think it was 130 yeah, yeah. that's a terrifying terrifying, so terrifying set of slides 87 percent decrease in the market I know. and i'm wondering i don't know if you are is the market going to turn again? Because I look yesterday again, and I look at Apple mm. higher than before, um, mm. S and P almost where it was at. I know. Post COVID, everything. Some of them are above. Some are above. Um, Apple, I think Apple's maybe twenty percent above post COVID. So it came down. This shot back up again. Are we in for a a a Buffett shock? So what's happening in the markets, and look, it's, it's not dissimilar to what happened after the global financial crisis, but it's, it's worse this time around, much yeah. worse. Yeah. You've got a complete disconnect between the share prices. I mean, the, the couple of things happening, but you've got a complete disconnect between what's happening in the stock markets, and yeah. I'll explain why, versus the economy. Yeah. The economy is plunging. The same corporates whose share prices are sky high Actually, you know, the fundamentals are shot. And the fundamentals are shot because consumers are shot. You know, no. you can strip away. I mean, I've, I'm, you know, and I've always been in love with uh, economics and in particular macroeconomics. Mm. Um, and to me, you know, you can reduce macroeconomics and all the jargon, all the theories to one factor, mm. consumer spending. Mm. And people are not People feel poorer, are poorer, or are an, an, so, so until you, you resolve that, you know, the, the fundamentals, economic fundamentals are shot and say, hence, corporate fundamentals are shot. But in response to that globally, central banks, like they did after the global financial crisis, have thrown enormous amount of money at the problem. So they've basically made loans available at negative interest rates. So they're actually paying you to borrow money. 
Now, the concept post-global financial crisis and now has been that if you give banks, you know, free money, mm-hmm. they will take that money and mm-hmm. grant loans to businesses and consumers so that people can borrow money, spend, and that's how you mm-hmm. restart the economy. Of yes. course, that's not what happens in real world life. The same mm-hmm. banks, of course, they take the money because they can mm-hmm. borrow it at zero interest rates. Mm-hmm. And what do they do with it? They speculate. They mm-hmm. invest that money in the stock markets. Mm-hmm. And by investing in the stock markets, they push up shares prices. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in this, in this space right now, what has, you know, the, the share prices that have been pushed up are in particular technology shares. So you will find that although it's indices that are being driven up, like SAP 500, what's pulling up that index is companies like Apple, like Microsoft, like Google, like Mm -hmm. Amazon, you know, anything that is perceived to be a technology platform company, something that can benefit from online sales, from virtualization of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's not the you know, beltweather industrial manufacturers that are going up in price. It's those companies, but those companies are now so large that they affect. Now, the, the fact that SAP is being pushed up by, by those companies then has the psychological effect on everybody else in terms of saying, you know, if the U.S. markets are going up, you, South Africa must go up. So, so everyone is buying. Everyone is feeling positive. So asset managers are buying shares. Are seeing value. You know, I look at some of this crap and I go, I'm seeing no value. I'm <laughs> seeing risk to the corporates. <laughs> Where do you invest then? Where would you invest? Knowing, knowing what you know. Where uh, do you invest? In, in manufacturing the, companies? In, in, no. in agri? Look, I still believe in technology companies. I think the tech mm. giants are going to get bigger. Yeah. I think, you know, you need to look at sectors that will benefit from the current crisis. So, anything to do with genuine, anything to do with online, online sales, but then auxiliary businesses, courier businesses, you know, delivery businesses, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of those kind of auxiliary um, companies. You invest in healthcare, um, you know, just because I think healthcare will become a major, major focus of governments worldwide. I mean, the pity is that we don't have you know, many of those sectors available to us in South Africa. I mean, you know, we've launched some tech funds. We are launching a healthcare fund on the 1st of August just to benefit from the, the theme where I think there will be a lot of government grant funding given to pharmaceutical companies, to startup companies looking at healthcare innovation. So that's mm-hmm. certainly a sector that, you know, one would be very interested in, in you know, playing in. Um, you know, and obviously what you would avoid is anything to do with tourism, anything to do with, you know, kind of in, uh, aviation, anything that is um, very dependent, anything to do with banking, mm-hmm. anything to do with insurance, because those insurance claims are going to roll in, the, you know, bad loans are going to no. materialize on the balance sheets of banks. No. So, you know, so, so you've got to be kind of, if, if you want to, to look at it from um, thematic short-term perspective, because, you know, long-term mm. perspective, if you've got a 40-year time horizon, you know, nothing about investments, you invest in high equity, hopefully passive fund, mm. and like single skeleton 71, and forget about it. 
Yeah. But if you are more of a short-term investor, so you, you're looking at one year time horizon, two years, three years, then you've mm-hmm. got to target themes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and frankly, I've withdrawn, you know, I was worried about overvaluations, not that it makes me any genius, neither did I anticipate COVID. But mm-hmm. in January of this year, I pulled all my money out of the equity markets. I left money in some tech stocks. Um, I invested in flexible income funds because of high yield. So I felt the yields were very attractive. And the rest of the money I pumped. And again, I did not envisage COVID. Um, so, so I'm not a, any genius here. You know, it, it's bad. You know, I found um, a very exciting company in the UK called um, Oxford Sciences Innovation. And it's a company which is a joint venture between Oxford University, some leading asset managers, we managed to acquire some shares, and they basically have exclusivity on commercializing all IP emerging out of Oxford University. So they spin out companies. And most of the companies, given that Oxford has, you know, is, is a number one medical research university and life sciences research university in the world, most of those spin out companies have to do with healthcare innovation. So I actually took a big chunk of my money and I invested that in Oxford Sciences Innovation, not envisaging the pandemic. Well, you did Um, well. But, uh, you know, one of those uh, companies is involved in the Oxford vaccine project. Mm. So, um, you know, but... I I mean, we had um, Lady Panda at our event last year and I think what I saw for, for a little while now is there's so many, like, books around founders at university doing their thesis and then launching their business as a student. They're seeing it on the ground. I mean, the, the, the names are, you know, known. And so what I also saw is in the UK, someone like Cambridge, also like Oxford, but I think, I think it's something like, I don't know, I've forgotten the, the amount. It's like, like 100,000 businesses are funded at Cambridge. It must be similar in Oxford by the university and that's both helping mentoring these graduates. And I asked, um, you know, UCT, all our universities in South Africa, why isn't the same thing? Is it, is it an opportunity, Magda? Is it an opportunity to get behind our university, get behind our students and start putting in fun together where we start also, because I saw what you did and I was like, wow, that is, that's classy. And I'm glad you're getting the results from that risk because, you know, it's ballsy to do it. But, and, and I looked at that and I thought, wow, why aren't we doing that here or is it harder than that so so i think it's a little bit different you know universities typically help academics so so you know whether it's um you know in oxford cambridge some situation you're looking at universities where the innovation isn't coming from 20 year olds you know with with in yeah. some behavioral app that they have developed, you know, Instagram, TikTok or whatever. You're looking at life sciences, which require, you know, a lot more research and years of research. Mm-hmm. Um, but universities typically only assist in so far as registration of patents is concerned and registration mm-hmm. of, you know, protection of IP. The funding comes from venture capital firms. And if you look at Stanford University as the best example, because it's so absurd, you know, Silicon Valley. Here's Stanford, you know, known hub for computer sciences, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And you've got the Sand Hill Road leading up to Stanford. 
and there is a VC firm after VC firm after v v like vultures mm. surrounding the university. So you've got all these, and it is tech focused, so it is youngsters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but literally, they're spoiled for choice. They've got an idea for something. Yeah. They, you know, they, they literally walk down the road and select their firm to talk to and pitch their business model. And those mm. firms then take them inside, nurture, build the businesses, da, da, da. Mm. You know, in South Africa, I believe, um, you know, the only real kind of, and it's a teeny tiny fund, Stellenbosch University has a VC fund, or there's a VC fund associated with Stellenbosch University. Mm. Um, so, so I think it is an opportunity in South Africa. Mm. You know, what's happening in South Africa, which is so sad, is where we've got these really, really bright minds you know, be it in the, and it's easier to talk, to talk about it in the context of, um, you know, kind of IP associated with tech because it's quicker to market, it's faster, it's easier to understand than talking to you about diagnostics, you know, that originate out of Oxford or, you know, vaccine platforms or, you know, there's a lot more hard science behind this. But, you know, tech in, in South Africa, you know, if you are a youngster, with mm. youngster, okay, early 20s. Yeah. And uh, you've got some brilliant idea for a brilliant app, for a brilliant business model. You typically leave, you yeah. emigrate, yes. and you approach... How do we stop that? Because I agree. And then we have these brilliant minds that we've educated yeah. that leave the country when we need them to add value. And, yeah. and so the, the, everything's there. But, and so how do we change that? So... That was the, the one sort of yeah. dilemma I'm seeing quite a lot, like yeah. great minds. No, 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 so am I, so am I. Look, I think it's a combination of things. So capital availability of, and making capital available yeah. um, is one factor. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's also the fact it's not cheap. that it's not cheap and it's risky, you know, because yeah. in many of these ventures, unless you, and this is what Oxford has done particularly well with OSI because you know, the Oxford Sciences Innovation as a company nurtures these entrepreneurs. Yeah. So they've set up a whole company to nurture, you know, the, the founders. Yeah. Um, so, so you would have to set up exactly the same ecosystem in South Africa where it's not just an issue of money. It's yeah. an issue because, you know, in most of these cases, these people have no idea how to commercialize a business. Mm. They have no idea how to draw up a business plan. So they might have a brilliant idea, but from that point on, you mm. need to, and they can execute technically on delivery of mm. an app, say, mm. but to turn that into a business, which is commercial right. revenue producing, you know, that takes mentorship. It takes business mentorship. Mm. It takes people with, you know, years of experience behind mm. them to it take. So it's, it's, it's a collaboration type effort. Mm. So it's not an issue, you know, it's not just an issue of, of funding. It's an mm. issue of business mentorship of, of, you know, say youngsters coming out of universities. Um, and I don't believe that we've got a venture capital culture instead of, we don't even have that as a sector. Mm. You know, it's, there are no venture capital funds. Um, mm. It's not something that anyone has looked at or has done um, in the South African context. And look, I set up that business. I set up a venture capital business in, in London last year. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm still on a little bit of a learning curve mm. myself. I mean, I've got the commercial experience, you know, so, so I can certainly lend the commercial expertise to this equation. But, you know, the, the idea would be if, um, you know, I can make the business in the UK a success, um, then I will have a template that I can possibly bring into South Africa and mm-hmm. um, introduce it in, in South Africa. But, you know, I don't believe that right now, if you look at financial services industry in South Africa, that we actually have those skills because there are no venture capital fund. So, I mean, I, in, in doing my research on you, one of the things that came across really often was this, this word, well, this phrase, scanning the environment. And, and, and I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to leave with anything, right, because I think that your background is unique, I think your motivation is unique, you know, it's clear that it's been hard work that sets you apart, you're, I think you're so highly respected. It's, it's unreal in terms of combating corruption and being a voice for business. It's like, we, we, can't, we can't applaud you enough, really. But I'm just thinking on something that, that other people can take away from you. And I don't know if you've sort of worked this out, but it, it seems like when you were studying, you scan the environment. When you were looking for a job, you scan the environment. When you're looking for investments, you scan, and you, you said scan the environment. And I'm like, can you give us, like like five or ten steps to successfully scanning the environment. Can you leave us with that? Sure. So so so, you know. I mean, first of all, in terms of entrepreneurship, and I always say to people that I encounter because you know, if you encounter an average twenty year old and you say to him, "What do you want to do in life?" The answer is the same. I want to run my own business. Yeah. Now. Actually, the world is divided into people who do want to run their own business and those that actually don't. They want a comfortable job in a large company where they've got job security. You know, so so first of all, recognize where you are, which, and there's no, you know, no right or wrong answer. Recognize what type of an individual you are. Don't push yourself into entrepreneurship field. Mm. It's actually what you want is a really nice job at Old Mutual. Nothing wrong with that. Mm. Then go and, and win the battles in a cup. If you're in the entrepreneurial field, then, you know, you need to be able to absorb as much information around you. as you. Mm. So this is the scanning the environment mm. as you possibly can. Mm. And... You know, you're doing it constantly. So, so, you know, I wake up in the morning. Okay, I mean, apart from the fact that I then get on a treadmill for two hours. I want to talk about that as well, by the way. Oh, God, you've got no time. To... Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I do I... triathlons. So I, I won SA Champs four years in a row. Four okay. So I can, I can relate, but two hours on a treadmill. Yeah. That's I watch, no, I watch uh, crime series. That's my fascination with corruption. And documentaries and uh, political documentaries um, learn about the world. So this is where macroeconomics comes in. You look at geopolitical events, you look at uh, what's happening in business, you look at, I mean, politics, the the convergence of politics and economics fascinates me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, the, the, in particular, central banks, politicians have become to have started to play a much greater role in business than pure capitalism has ever envisaged. 
So you cannot ignore, you know, you've got to look at economics, you've got to, to look at politics, global politics, and those forces. And only then do you actually look at the private sector and, and companies and, you know, what those sectors are doing. So I subscribe to multiple publications. I mean, absolutely, you know, anything from, you know, slightly trashy things like the Telegraph to, sorry, don't quote me, to, you know, Financial Times, to The Economist, to The New York Times, to, you know, Washington Journal, to Business Life. Um, and so I start my day by scanning all the headlines and reading the news, you know, the, the articles that catch my eye. Mm. So, so I start my day with, mm. okay, this is what has happened. This is what is happening. And often you, so, so I read a lot. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we are living in a culture where, you know, it's not about reading. I think it's quite difficult to get through a book. So I mm. often find myself, you know, I get through the first three, four chapters and then I go to the last chapter of the book and I go, okay, hey, okay, I'm done. Mm. Um, you know, let's, so, so scan multiple sources, talk mm. to a lot of people because, mm. you know, there's so much wisdom around. So if I find a topic that's interesting, I find a person that can um, tell me something more about mm. a topic. Always recognizing that, you know, and I, I go back to that, you know, the book Blink and 10,000 Hours. I'll never become an expert at something. But, you know, what I'm seeing, and if I see a convergence of themes, then that sparks an idea. It sparks an idea for a business or it sparks an idea for a product. And then, you know, this is the lecture I always give my kids in terms of, you know, scanning envi the environment is that. Be aware. Be part of the conversation. Try and be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but, but once you've got that, you know, you, you can also go get to information overload. So you need to make sure that you can then bring it all together into... So, so if I see... Because I scan so much, mm -hmm. you will see very quickly that there is, at a point in time, there might be three topics that are where the convergence of conversations happens. So then I focus on those. Mm. And then the next step is to say, is there a commercial business opportunity in any of it? Mm. Um, and if you actually think there is, this is where the bravery to make decisions comes in. Because, you know, I actually gave a lecture to my two university sons last night. And I said, you know, there is only one thing in life that's black and white, and that's death. Life and mm. death. Mm. Everything else is shades of gray. Mm. You're living in shades of gray. Mm. And hence, you know, every decision, whether you want to make it or not, and the world is plain, you know, is full of people who don't want to make decisions. But any decision you make in life mm. is a fun function of operating somewhere in the shade of gray and weighing up, here are the pros, here are the cons, here are the pros, here are the cons. Mm. Once you've done that in your in your head, what distinguishes people who become leaders versus the ones that don't um, are people who are willing to, based on imperfect information, make decisions. And it doesn't mean that it's always the right decision, but it's that willingness to make quick decisions based on imperfect information that distinguishes people who lead 
and people who follow. Mm. And so to, to sum up what you're saying, it's it's because I've heard this before as well. It's speed's obviously a big thing, yeah. and it's rather make a decision than no decision at all. Yeah. And then if you make a decision, don't feel compelled to stick with that decision. You can Absolutely. always change it. Backpedal, backpedal. The moment backpedal. I have no qualms about having made a decision six no. months down the road going, what a stuff up. Guys, no. I'm the first one to say wrong decision. Reverse, reverse, reverse. Yeah. Wrong decision. And, and obviously when you're scanning the environment, what you're doing really is you're getting data. So yeah. you're looking for trends and you're, you're, you're connecting the dots almost in terms of data. And then you're making an assumption, an intuition, like, okay, like that's looking like it's going there. And then let's mm-hmm. enter that opportunity. Correct. Correct. And some of them might be terrible. I mean, I made a terrible decision around Bitcoin. You know, I honestly got into the story of this is going to be digital gold. We need to launch a Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin exchange, you know, I mean, blockchain technology was going to be revolutionary. Um, It might still be. I'm not saying the concept of blockchain isn't solid. But is Bitcoin going to be the digital gold? You know, I bought into the tulip mania, lost a lot of money in the process. Bought Bitcoin, lost money, started building an exchange at a point at which you know, the volumes of trading dropped off so dramatically that uh, financially Bitcoin exchanges no longer made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so six months down the line, I basically quite happily put up my hands. I said, guys, waste of money, waste of our time, wrong decision. I know I drove the decision. No. I was wrong. So, I mean, last question, I promise. But I mean, what do you see the future of Africa? How do you see the future of Africa? You know, it's, it's a, Africa is a continent. And um, I think, you know, the, the Africa is not one solid, um, you know, it doesn't have the same trajectory. Different countries will do different things, will develop at different paces. Some will uh, be progressive. Some will remain autocratic, kind of, you know, despotic, um, corrupt entities. Um, you know, I find, so, so I prefer to talk about South Africa because I've always mm. said, you know, there's a tendency just like this, you know, Africa is made up of different countries with different mm. dynamics. Mm. Um, just like Europe is mm. made up of different countries, different cultures, mm. the same thing applies to Africa. Um, so, so I like to talk about South Africa because to me, South Africa is kind of a convergence of mm-hmm a whole lot of good and a thin layer of bad. And the thin mm. layer of bad, unfortunately, tends to sit in government and steal. But, um, you know, I don't believe that 59 million people in South Africa are corrupt. I actually tend to believe that 59 mm. million people in South Africa are, you know, honestly, honest, hardworking. They just want mm. to survive. Yeah. They want to live. They want a thriving economy. They want to educate their children. They mm. don't want to steal. Mm. So, so that corruption layer is actually mm. very thin. Mm. You know, underneath it, you know, every time I come back to South Africa, you have happy people. You have smiling people. You have people willing to help each other. You, you, there's so much positive mm. energy around mm. it, which 
it's, it's just a pleasure. You know, you, you go to a restaurant, people smile at you. You go to a restaurant mm -hmm. in London, trust me, no one is smiling. So, <laughs> you know, the, that kind of optimism and positivity has a lot going for it, apart from the fact that, you know, South Africa is one of the most beautiful countries in the world from mm -hmm. natural beauty perspective. Um, so if we could sort out a government and the way the country is run, you know, and I again don't think it would take a lot, but unfortunately it would take a lot. You know, on one hand, it's not a lot. Blockchain could help that. Yeah. Then, you know, why would I want to live in, you know, and I split my time between, as I said to you, London and, and Cape Town and South Africa. But why on earth would I want to, you know, it's summer in London, it's 16 degrees outside, it's gray and raining. <laughs> and I haven't seen a tree for a few days now versus I'm in Cape Town, greenery all around, a mountain in the background, ocean on the left, mountain the on the right. It's you in know, front of me. Like, oh. you know, from a, from a life perspective, where would you rather spend your time? In a kind of concrete jungle or oh. in a real jungle or, you know, in, in, in something as beautiful as South Africa. So I think that, you know, if more people were a little bit, you know, more engaged and, and, you know, I've tried in my small way to, to become engaged in be it, you know, I've chosen the hobby horse of fighting corruption because, mm -hmm. you know, I just happen to be able to do forensic, you know, analysis work on, on where the money, where, where the money goes. Mm -hmm. um, but if there were more people calling out corruption from the private sector and the general populace, um, if, if people just rallied around the cause of eliminating corruption, mm -hmm. holding people accountable, shaming, naming and shaming, you know, mm -hmm. I think you could build up a huge spirit of solidarity in South Africa, which could propel the country forward. Mm. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom, despite this mm. pandemic that we're living through. Mm. I really truly don't. Um, I think with the correct leadership, and I'm not saying we have correct leadership right now, which, which, mm. which is tragic for me to say, because I actually did think that we were on the right path. And now I think we're in a, you know, holding pattern. It's not as bad as Zuma, but it's nowhere near the potential mm. that was expected. Mm. Um, then, you know, I think South Africa could thrive. Mm. You know, I think some of the problems we will not eliminate in our lifetime, you know, problems of inequality, we will not eliminate. In, but, you know, things like poor education, you know, with mm. technology, with free data, with free cheap plastic laptops like Uruguay has done. You know, you don't need teachers or teachers unions. Mm. You need one teacher mm. on a screen. Well, that's what they're scared of. I know, lecturing to, you know, the best teachers. You could have 200 best teachers in South Africa actually educating every single student and pupil mm. in South Africa using laptops and technology right now. Sure. It was amazing and we're very grateful and honoured to speak to you. Um, well, oh, we hope the weather turns in, in London for you. Oh, I know the feeling, especially if you can't shop. The beauty of London is shopping and if you can't oh, shop, it's, it's dreadful. 
No, it's dreadful. It's dreadful. Yeah. I'll be back in South Africa at the moment the borders open. Well, hopefully you can go to the pub and get a wine or a beer or something to... I can get a glass of wine. <laughs> you can get, get some wine. There you go. <laughs> Cheers to everyone in South Africa. We're all yeah, jealous. Okay. I'm <laughs> for wine. <laughs> Thank you so very much for your time and best of luck with index funding as well. And The Apprentice, we've been looking out for you at The Apprentice. Well, let's South see if it's, in, if it's at all possible given the pandemic. You know, that, that I think is film production has taken a backseat to everything else. So, um, mm. you know... If it happens, when it happens, um, you know, I'll be there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Magda. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.